Hi, this is Caitlin Canty, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, a podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. My guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Caitlin Canty, who has a wonderful new album out called Quiet Flame, and we are going to have a chat about that. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, first of all, congratulations on a wonderful record. I've been listening to it for a few weeks now and absolutely loving it. Thank you so much. And sort of rather than do the the kind of what age did you start playing and work all the way through high school up to now, I'd just like to start with the record because it's got um it's got quite an interesting had quite an interesting passage into the world, this record, didn't it? It was about to come out or about to be made mm-hmm. just before the world stopped. Yeah. Um, and you'd, I think you'd actually put one single out already by that point, hadn't you? I did. I When uh, we were planning to go in and record, we I think it was March. It was March 2020 and um, not the greatest planning on our part. But we um, we were trying to fit the recording session in and I was I was pretty pregnant. So there was a, a, a window where it seemed like the best time to, to get that record done and um we actually had a tornado before the pandemic a few days so in our neighborhood in east nashville a tornado came through at night and uh flattened a few blocks of our neighborhood and came super close to our house we were all you know locked in there with trees down and everything for a bit everybody was scattered around helping neighbors and you know out with their chainsaws and bagged lunches and then a few days later it was uh, go home and lock the doors because there's this virus going around, you know? So it was a really strange moment in time. And, um, when the, when all the doors locked, the studio locked its doors too. And we thought, well, we'll just wait a week and wait a month (laughs) and get after it. And that's not how things happened. Um, so I made, I did put out one record, one song that I also put on this record. Where's the heart of my country. Um, I just felt, I guess I'm an optimist. I thought it was going to, not be as necessary, not be as timely if I waited and waited until the record was ready. And uh, I was going a little stir crazy. So we did that one, um, that version that came out uh, at home and and Britt and Paul did it in a studio separately. So it wasn't the same kind of get together and, and record together. We had played it before. We were all ready to go in and cut this record. So it felt live because we were... Um, we were streaming with them, you know, while they were playing to what I had recorded. Hmm. But I don't know. It was just like, that's just a tease. I was just waiting to get into a room with those guys and play this music. So that's, it felt so good when we finally got to, got to realize it. And it does like, for all it being your record and your songs, it does feel like such a band record. And I still, still feels like that about some of your other records as well. They feel like a collective effort. Um, even though it's one person's name on the cover, it definitely feels like a selection of musicians put together for a reason. Well, that's cool. I I would hope so. I think I would love if that was my band full time and, and, you know, we had a different name than Caitlin Canty, I'd be very thrilled for that. But I think one of the reasons I, I record the last three records I've made have been live in studio and it's not been, I, I don't travel um, and play live and tour with a full band you know it's just not uh, realistic for me at this moment but it seems like the um, bands that i've chosen have ha- they have to be these great players that i've heard play on different projects or, or played with before that can really move quickly in a studio and and also people who have um, a really strong individual voice on their own instrument that's what i'm attracted to so i don't have a, i don't really have a a um a vision I'm trying to fit people into. I have like a, a dinner party, like of the people and the sounds that they create that I want, that I feel like would, would surround my songs and we would get somewhere together. Um, I don't like to, you know, corner somebody and like drill them down into playing some l- less or something different than what they're comfortable with. Cause I was very, obviously very familiar with all these, these folks on the record. We're friends. We played in lots of living rooms together. So this felt like the most natural extension of these songs. And it sort of feels like, um, in many ways, listening to a bunch of people playing in a living room, it's quite an intimate record in a lot of ways. And mm. 
there's a very there's you put out um and we'll come back to sort of talk about some of the details of the record but you, you put sure. out a few videos of you guys playing these songs together yeah i'm like i'm not a fan of music videos because they neither. very like rarely <laughs> add anything to the song right. but watching these songs and particularly acoustic music and you can see like the tune and the energy being visibly passed around between people and see you like the little looks towards each other and who's watching who and like I love watching stuff like that and it does add something because you feel the energy move around the room oh that's cool you think so we had we we booked a day I decided not to do any publicity for this record you know pay somebody to go ask people to uh, write nice things about me (laughs) like ridiculous we just light a pile of money on fire um and I thought, you know, the thing that seems to last longer with a with a record release is a video, a live video. Um, I don't like music videos either. Um, I don't really want to play an actress in the, you know, in, in the story of the song. It just doesn't make me feel like a, the way I want to spend my day. But playing the music again live, just basically without an audience or an audience of only two videographers and um, and our audio engineer, that was like hell yeah, I would love to spend a day with these guys again. And so we, since we'd already made the record, we were, you know, just did one or two takes. We weren't thinking about who plays what, where's the break, who takes that first verse kind of thing. It was just very much um, autopilot. And, but we kept, it kept, we started with all four of us, me, Sarah Jaros, Paul Coart, and Brittany Haas. And then Sarah left after two songs and Britt and Paul and I did one. And then Britt left and Paul and I did one and then Critter came in and we did a duet. So it was just, uh, it wasn't like a normal day in the studio where you kind of get into a groove. It was just musical chairs. And I, we still got a couple to put out um, from that session. It was a blast. And I've started filming some videos with the songwriters who I co-write, co-wrote a few of the songs with. Um, oh, cool. And so that's been really fun to duet with, with them the way we started those songs. Yeah, it's great getting to see stuff like that. Um you know, I was going to ask if there are any more videos to come because it's just such a cool way. Like with acoustic music, particularly, it's just that you know, it does add something to it when you can see people, um, mm-hmm. which isn't always the case with music and visuals. Um, and I was going to ask that with this, did the record you ended up making was it the record that you would have made if you'd gone into the studio a couple of days after the sort of shutdown started, or did it? Because you, you were already you had the people in place. You were obviously mm-hmm. working with Chris Eldridge to produce it at this point, right? Did it just get delayed or did it sort of morph into something else? Yeah, it morphed for sure. We were going to have a drummer play on the record, Joaquin Cooter. Um, and he was flying in from L.A. So that was a no-go as soon as the um, shutdown started. And losing him, it just made me rethink the whole deal. The, the core of the record from the beginning was Paul and, and Britt, the way they play together the way their string arrangements worked on some of the songs that just took uh, two of my older songs, um, Wild Heart and Odds of Getting Even, had both been kicking around for over two records. You know, they just didn't fit on past records. I've been playing them in my live show. And when Paul and Britt played those, it was like, yep, this is it. This is the this is the sound for this song. This is what it's been waiting for. And so they were kind of the essential heart of, of um, the record vision. And Paul is such an insane bass player. I mean, I sometimes if he's playing drums, he has to share the space of the rhythm section. But if he's, um, you know, released to, to have a little more space, then he can be more featured. And if Sarah is playing her mandolin, she can be the drummer, you know, so to speak. And I think um, Critter had the brilliant idea of asking Sarah. I was like, well, of course. He said, you know, what if we ask Sarah if she'd want to, you know, fill this out and you make it, the string record and I was yeah that'd be great what are the chances and she was down for it and that I mean we had a lot of dates on this too rehearsals and it's she's been such a amazing I'm, I'm just so glad that um what happened happened like our our round two it it felt I think when I was envisioning this record I wanted the songs like um they pull the moon. I can feel that charged with a band, you know, and when I'm playing my guitar part, that's a little bit um, rhythmic and muted. It was kind of like how I was feeling the rhythm sections part, um, but not what I thought would be a featured element of the song. If I were producing it and arranging the whole deal myself for someone else. 
And because it, it turned into the string band record that became a featured part of the song, which I think is, is one of my favorite, um, you know, favorite guitar parts of mine on that record. And that's because Critters, a guitar player, I completely respect and admire. And when he says, that's cool, you're like, I'm not going to argue with you. If you think we're going to feature that, then I will go play it a lot at home. You know, like he's, um, that, that would have been a different, uh, conversation if I were working with someone who wasn't just a killer guitar player um yeah I think I've, I've definitely swung around on several different lines of, of thinking on on that well it's in, there's some there's all stuff in there but I think that just that thought about no drums and it's one of the because mm-hmm. I've listened to previous records of yours that have had drums and have had sort mm-hmm. of pedal steel and electric guitar and and band it's first off the band is the drummer on this record and i love that and there's some of those choices that that paul makes there's quite a lot of bowed bass on this like very yeah. rhythmic bowed bass mm-hmm. which is not often the route you'd go down if you want something to really drive a lot of people right. would think of but it's got that egg meyer sort of like real sort of mm-hmm. percussive and it's and it sounds great and it sounds different but mm-hmm. well like one of the things i love because i was listening to these songs and in Maybe not lyrically, I don't know. We can come on to this as well. But texturally, the songs aren't that different from the songs on your other record. Mm -hmm. But because the instruments used are, like, I can hear pedal steel all over this record. It's not there, but I can hear that. Like, you could have gone down that route and it would have sounded brilliant. But there's something about acoustic instruments where instead of all the strings coming out of one speaker, you hear each string like it's... There's just a slightly more open weave about the sound, if that makes sense, that lets some air that. through, and it just gives the voice like a something mm-hmm. more to to. I don't know. I can't quite get it into words, but there's just a, a bit more space. space. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that was definitely part of what Critter and I were after from the beginning. I I was so drawn to at the time they were called Mandolin Orange, and they became Watch House. Uh, the way their records feel spacious and, um there's something very simple about them. That's never boring. You know, it just, there's something that's um, really emotional when I listen to that, their music. And I'd always been such a fan of um, Gregory Allen Isakov's record that uh, empty Northern hemisphere. And that is actually a very thick record. There's so many things going on, but it feels, it still feels acoustic. And I, so I think we were thinking somewhere between that spectrum uh, or in that, in that ballpark, but Mm. I guess, um, I didn't, when we started to think about studio stuff and all the bells and whistles that are in a studio, you can add, you know, keys to certain things or Hammond or, you know, just whatever seems to be there might sound great on that song and it could be there. But I really, I started to become so excited about this idea of, we don't, I don't want to change one song and add drums to three songs or, you know, I just want it to be us in a room and that was such a clear vision to me because of the time spent off the road and not playing with people and the time spent just aching to be with living, breathing humans in a room making music like for for days. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Let's not put anything in the way of that. Let's not put an amp in a different room and play an electric guitar. Let's not um, separate ourselves. The way we were organized in the studio, I was actually separate, but I could look into the big room um, and the band was in a the big room together. And I actually did one song with Paul at the very end, um, quiet flame together in the big room, which was really, really sweet. Um, just to circle back on that last question too, about drummers, you know, Billy Conway was the drummer friend, mentor, superhero, um, who I would have been on this record if he had been sick with cancer that time, he wasn't an option when I was recording. And, um, it sort of felt made more sense to not have drums on the record when he passed away. I had written that song quiet flame to him and in conversation with him, looking out the window, thinking about him, writing him a letter, you know? And, uh, and so it just made a lot of sense that he's gone. Why would I fill his shoes right now with somebody, you know, that he, he leaves a big space behind too. And it's really interesting what that does for the rest of the band because it's like you say in a studio, if there's a Hammond there and there's this and there's that, people like to play and go, let's try that, see what that's, and that's a brilliant way to make records. Yeah. But it means like, so listening to the just the range of, like, talk about Paul and the Bode bass versus 
like pluck bass and listening to like Sarah playing some sort of quiet banjo lines and the way that Brittany uses texture on the fiddle to do oh some gosh, things yeah. that maybe you would have a pedal steel do, but you've got string lines instead for that sustain. So, and there's so many, it yeah. lets them sort of use the whole color palette. I mean, they, 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 they always them. do, but it's true, but it also puts a lot of pressure on them. The, the fewer players there are, the more um, spotlight is continuously on them. It doesn't just shift over for the, and they get to, to step away. It's really, everybody's on, on deck, all hands on deck. Um, it was really fun. The, the, having the four of us play as a core band and then uh, Critter would join for a song or two and, and Noam joined for one song. It just felt like we got into a, um, a zone where at, in some songs, like Sarah and I were a unit, like a, let's say Wildheart, we were co-singing live, which is amazing that she could do that. Well, she, we were far enough away. It's not like we're just next to each other singing that she's, she was on me like glue. It only harmonizes on one little uh, bridge moment. And, um, so we sang that live and I, someone just wrote a review that said, Canty doubled her vocals. I'm like, no, I didn't. I, that was live. That was Sarah. <laughs> and that's why it's so spooky. I think, cause it's real. It's not just, um, you know, an effect happening after or singing to yourself. Um, but it felt like we were twins on, on that song or on um, pull the moon. We were strumming. We were doing a similar pattern on our instruments, but it gave it kind of a, a, when you pan those instruments, it gives you like you're in a, a different space when two instruments are reflecting each other. And and in Paul and Britt, the way they play together always feel like a two-headed monster to me. They're just like one being. And so it, it was just um it was a, a absolutely a, like a I don't know, a carnival for me. It was just the coolest way to uh explore my songs. It was it was like sweaty and raw and um and like a like a big family hug and just uh, a party for these songs that had been waiting um <laughs> so patiently for anyone to play along with them uh so i just had a blast there and and also like i'm I, these are my friends but i'm also massively intimidated by them they are just masters of their instruments you know complete uh superstars and I'm a songwriter who sings because I have to sing. Someone's got to sing my songs and I'm a guitar player because I write songs and all of that stuff has grown because of the songs, but I didn't start out as some guitar hotshot. You know, it's not like that's where I come from. So I'm, I surround myself with, uh, I, like I used to play soccer, um, you know, and basketball when I was a kid. And I always remember the term, you, you just got to play up. That's the only way to ever get better. So surround yourself like, you know, I would play with the boys when I was on, you know, playing soccer team, we would scrimmage with the guys. And that was one way we got, um, got better play with the older kids. Like it just the, the musicians that I look up to, if I can, if, if I can hear them play my songs, it's just like the, the biggest gift. It's, it's such a thrill. And you can kind of flip that around and uh, you're being really modest there. You can flip that around and say musicians who are that good need some material to connect with to get the best of them out. And it sounds like the perfect blend of all of that on this record. It's like, you know, you get you, none of those are players who would ever dial in a performance. But when right. there's some magical moments that are drawn out of them by the songs and by the collaboration. And it's a, you know, it's a two way street is what I'm saying, I guess. Mm. Well, I'd hope so. <laughs> and it's interesting you talk about the vocals because you mentioned um, Watch House and Andrew sings on the record along yeah. with Sarah. And that first track, Blue Sky Moon, like I'm, it starts and I'm sitting there going, this is good, I'm here. Let's." And then the harmonies come in and you go, oh, okay, here we go. Here we this That point where those harmonies come in is so kind of just such a moment so early on in the record. Oh, cool. um, and just that, you know, those those three voices together you sound great yeah what a trip i mean if i could that i got my got my first call first picks on everybody on this record i i had said to critter early on when we were i usually like to sing with a male harmony um harmony vocal just it, it seems to suit my voice my ears drawn to that lower side of of the harmonies and um I said, I'd love like somebody who sings like, you know, like Andrew Marlin type voice. And he said, why don't we just ask Andrew Marlin? And so we did. And he was happy to uh, assist. He's the only one we didn't have 
live in the studio. He was in North Carolina and he sent us his backing vocals after we'd, um, you know, sent him the tracks. But they were just, yep, done, done. <laughs> Thank you very much. There was no, like, could you try? So like, Thank you. That was perfect. Exactly what I wanted. Uh, so felt very lucky. And it's interesting because because Chris Eldridge produced this, and I mm-hmm. I don't know about this. I there must be all sorts of stuff I'm missing. But I, from what I've seen him produce, he seems to produce quite a lot of instrumental music. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen him produce a whole lot of vocal stuff. No, before. I I'm excited that I got to be. I guess possibly I don't know if it's officially his first. So his partner of many many years, Kristen Andres, and is a great friend of mine. We've co-written some songs together too. She's an insanely beautiful songwriter uh just they just pour out of her it's so unfair um <laughs> and so he's been you know in their long-standing musical relationship a huge partner in how her songs are shaped and produced and um i'm sure that's so it's not like it's new ground he's a singer songwriter himself you know it's um i guess the producing part isn't what he's after so much. I think Critter's just like, um, he, he's, he's, he grows. I, he, I saw him play. I've seen him play in Punch Brothers years before, um, Chris Dealey started it with the, the whole band pretty much played for, um, live from here on those few years where Prairie Home Companion turned to live from here, that radio show with just live music, wall to wall, brand new stuff. So much work. Like they, they created these beautiful shows that would just, you know, disappear after that, that moment in time, they wouldn't like tour that song that they worked so hard on critter. What I'm trying to say is played electric guitar and he played guitar on all these different styles of music. Um, when they, and I remember seeing him play in punch brothers after that and being like critter, what happened to you? (laughs) Like I just saw him grow. And that's so cool. when you can see someone who's already a master, grow and change something something clicks in them differently where they find new ground and i think he's i think producing a record like mine is probably just new ground you know like it's still in in part of what he's been doing before um he produced one for ben garnett around the same time and um i just i think um that might be what he was drawn to i mean he we have similar tastes we know that and um I think it was when we talked about it, it was like, yeah, this sounds great. Right time. We'll get it done here. Fits in. (laughs) And then, you know, it it took us a little longer than we had planned. There were two babies that entered our worlds in that time and a whole lot of other music. But I love what we came up with. Me too. Um, You talked about coming into the project with a couple of songs kind of from older, that didn't make it onto older records. And are all the songs that ended up on the record, were they all there sort of pre-pandemic or was there anything that came after that got tacked on? Yeah. uh, A lot of the songs were, I, I did a lot of editing and rewriting and adding a verse here, you know, that stuff to some of the ones that were in existence. I wrote quiet flame well after the um, original uh, session that didn't happen. And I think there was one other one, but yeah, um, one actually that will come out after this, which just didn't fit on the record. It wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to print vinyl. So we've got another song that'll come when I get around to releasing it, <laughs> a single that's attached to this project. But um, I was writing so much during that time, but not uh, for this project. So I basically have a whole pile of songs. I'm I'm trying to decide what comes next because I've, been you know hanging out with these songs so long and i'm touring them it's so fun but i'm also playing brand new songs that are unrecorded at my live shows now because that's what i feel like doing you know uh so i'm sort of released from this music now that it is released and i'm kind of gearing up for what comes next which is exciting it's interesting because that whole period of um like being at home essentially particularly for musicians you know i'm mm. i'm used to being at home I, like most people I'm, I'm quite a lot but a lot of musicians aren't and that mm. just that couple of years of being like in one place in a community constantly you know and i, I was so sort of curious about that about whether 
that was reflected in this record or whether the next record is sort of where a lot of that's going to come out because it's it's such an experience mm. to go through and songwriting if you're a songwriter is how you process that stuff you know absolutely i think i've been talking to a friend about how i have a hard time writing about something that happens today you know um and and spitting it into a song the next day it's just it's like groundwater you know it's not uh songs for me aren't I, I feel, I think the urge to write when I see a pattern emerge or when, you know, three different people sort of have a similar experience or are eyeing the, the exit signs, you know, in a relationship or sort of had a similar um, word they, they use to describe their, their, that's when it feels like something sparks. There's a, there's a, some threads I want to braid together and, um, and that's where a song starts to go. So yeah, there's a definite lag between like life events and the song that was inspired by those life events. So I'll probably be hitting my pandemic songs around age 55 or something. <laughs> it was, it's interesting because there are a couple of songs on this record that feel like sort of processing a breakup songs. Yeah, I guess there could be. Uh, let's see. So I was thinking of like maybe See the Day. See the Day. Yeah. Um, it's definitely got a hint of that. I don't think about you sort of yeah that's sort of feels that way too it, i don't think about you to me was less about a breakup kind of song but more um about the thing i find hardest to do is just let go of anything like a um you know when you shut down your you're about to go to sleep at night and your brain decides not to shut down and it goes over the thing you said that was oh the joke you tried that was oh my goodness how did i you know that kind of <laughs> punishment like I can't let go of a grudge or a um, injustice or a stupid thing I said. And so that song to me, I started to envision letting go of like a a physical object in that song. If you look at the lyrics, it's moving further and further away from me. And for me, it's actually almost a a practice. Like if I sing that song, I'm reminding myself how to let something go down the river and not pick it up and, fuss over it you know how to um let the string go on a balloon or let the, watch the smoke go from a candle like let it move away from you and it's, it's like the most self-help song i've ever written i think <laughs> well, it's really interesting because i sort of got a theme of that from um from the record in general and it's like so blue sky moon's got the lines about um heavy current rushing by i don't follow where it's going yeah. there's line about no, I don't think if you watch the memories flow by, I don't try to catch one, which is mm-hmm. very much what you try to do when you're not kind of chasing your thoughts. And yeah. there's there's something, um, it feels like there's a thread of that through the record, a sort of, and it was one of the, and I, I wondered about that because it's really funny that you say with I don't think of you, that it's almost like a reminder to yourself because I was mm-hmm. wondering whether that's like, I don't think about, I don't think of you, or whether it's the, the narrator of the song telling themselves like I'm alright. I don't think about you. It's like you know. Yeah, I think it, that that song for me. There's such a country tradition, or like um, oh, what's the song? Um, where there's a cloud, don't mean there's rain. Tears in my eyes, don't mean there's pain. Don't flatter yourself. I'm over you. You know, it's like this yeah, whole yeah. song about I'm so over you, and clearly you're not. You know, that kind of country tradition. I think is maybe infused in the I don't give you song. Um, that's probably where that finds its home. So, so many of those songs, like She Thinks I Still Care, which is clearly, yeah, exactly. it's like, you know. Yeah. And um, I think that I Don't Think of You and, and Pull the Moon are the two that I sing live that are almost like, they're very helpful to me. Um, Pull the Moon just feels like a reminder that, you know, it's not supposed to be perfect out there. It's going to be rough. Like if it's gritty, it's, it's that's where it's supposed to be. You know, like sometimes I think young musicians go into that. I heard, I heard somebody talking about how they'd feel successful once they were touring with a bus, you know, like, I'm like, Ooh, you're not going to feel good for a long time. I think because <laughs> not too many people, you know, do the tour bus living. And if they do, they're giving up a lot to have, you know, to be gone all the time. There's not an easy way to do this. There's not, it, there's no real reason to do this it's only mad people who like (laughs) spend their lives up on stage and we do it because you there's something in you that has to i guess um but that song pull the moon is just like a 
the disillusionment and the realigning of your um <laughs> of your dreams and your reality and I don't know I I and trying to get to the heart of the matter and find that spark again like sometimes if you feel emptied out like you have nothing new to say or contribute or no I haven't heard a good new song in in years you know kind of feeling that that um if that curmudgeonly side takes hold of me like, like there's so many musicians I can look at and be inspired by or people you know who are um doing their thing regardless of who's listening and how many dollar bills are flying through the door and you know if there's one person in the audience fine by them like that's the it's just it's more about what the song is and what the what the music is I, I just I, I love using that song to find my way back to the the reason and the spark no that's really interesting because is that like i not really related to either your record or to music particularly, but I've been reading a book recently called 4,000 Weeks, which is just about, um, it's about so many of those themes and that we, we, you know, saying I will be successful when this or when that. And it's like we defer allowing ourselves to feel happy or successful mm -hmm. until some point where we reach a certain thing that we're not in control of anyway. And that idea of, um, and it's a theme that comes through some of these interviews, and it's a theme I'm really interested in, is just the idea of being an artist. Your job is just to be you. Like, mm -hmm. and if you can connect with a few people genuinely being you, mm -hmm. it ultimately must be more fulfilling than playing to a football stadium full of people doing oh, some gosh. music that you've, like, you've been singing for 20 years and can't stand. Right. I'm, I've, I'm so inspired by people like Dolly Parton. How many decades of music she's been singing and her songs, still the one she wrote as a teenager, she's still singing. Like, you, you want to be able to write something good enough that your 70-year-old self is still like, yeah, I can sing that, you know? I guess um, the stadium thing and the tour bus thing, though, I've been around enough people who do actually do that. Or, you know, my pedal steel, one of my favorite pedal steel players who's shared a, you know, crappy rental van, rental van, rental like Corolla with me is Eric Haywood. And he just, lo he's, he loves to play music. He loves to play live shows. He lives and breathes it. And at whatever level of audience members, and he was out with the Pretenders, and they were at um, what is it, Nashville Bridgestone Arena, the hockey rink that turns into the big stage. And it's just like I'd rather see him in a smaller room, you know. I'd rather it's just there's nothing. And he he would say the same. <laughs> I, I remember his stories of playing with Ray Lamontagne and his that that ascension of of, of Ray's, you know, uh, I guess stardom, and from like three hundred person rooms to the 800 opera houses to the sheds and it's like where was the music made where was it feeling good for the musicians on stage definitely not the arenas you know so that's not even anything I, I don't think I write songs for that sort of experience or would like to be in the audience for most of those experiences it's funny because being into the the sort of the bluegrass acoustic music world that I am living in the UK there's a whole load of stuff I never get to see mm. but when we do get to see it's often in much smaller rooms than it would be yeah. if it was in the states and you, cool. you find yourself feeling a little bit selfish of kind of going like I, like I want the bands that I like to be really successful and have comfortable lives and make some money but I also want them to keep playing this like 500 seat room because I like it <laughs> and I like to be able to see the whites of their eyes and feel like I'm part of the experience you yeah know? yeah maybe um, and that's what's cool about those videos you know the for the the tracks on this record that you made is it feels like and it's something that um and maybe the pandemic played a part in that because suddenly like we were in people's living rooms and like from my from a fan perspective you could suddenly just see whoever sat on their couch singing you some songs for half an hour and yeah. you know it's, it was a very and i don't know if that's if that's maybe changed people's attitudes to some stuff and what you can do now and what people will see as a, a product or a, a useful thing but it was just really interesting to sort of the rest of it had gone and so people who were born to communicate and had things to communicate couldn't go out and communicate and they just communicated through a screen somehow yeah it was definitely not my favorite thing to do I did a couple of live streams and and it's hard when you you see the scrolling of applause or something and <laughs> you um, get a, a distracting, like, it's almost like heckling. You see a comment, you're like, Oh, I want to talk to that person that uh, it's very, it's a bizarre connection. However, I have enjoyed watching them myself. So I just, for me, writing songs and um, 
playing them the whole cycle the big a big chunk that was missing was the live audience part you know because even when um when i first write a song if i don't play it in front of somebody i mean not even like asking for feedback if i don't share it I, it doesn't it's not finished it doesn't um i hear it differently when someone else is in the room i hear the weak points or the the thing that maybe was special to me but wouldn't come across to somebody else and so I missed a big piece of that songwriting and I had a big change in my life becoming a mom. I couldn't just be a songwriter at all hours of the day, meaning like I couldn't focus and drill into something if it felt like the, the song was coming on. I'd have to, if someone was sleeping on me, I'd have to, you know, uh, put it on my phone and um, get to it later. And I, I remember hearing Josh Ritter, who I adore, say something about becoming a father and how he was writing more songs. They're like, yeah, right. Come on. And maybe because you're not breastfeeding, you know, <laughs> like, sure. But I get it because your time becomes, um, you're not just, you know, uh, a, like a, an adult child who gets to just spend their day however they want. You, you have like limited time to write your songs. And because you have limited time, once you get to them, you like, it's all cannons are firing at, at that moment you know it's not wasted um there's no like oh i should go make a snack <laughs> like there's no time for a snack you have five minutes get get in there get into that song and I, I so i agree with um that how becoming a mom has changed my uh how i feel what is essential in a song what is essential to songwriting and music it's just really um i guess distilled that time spent and energy spent and um like the purpose too. You used to be able to play a live show anytime you want. You might not get paid for it, but you can just go busk somewhere or, you know, play a, play a bar. And when you couldn't even, you couldn't do anything like that. I remember just grieving the shows that I was planning on playing. I was going to open a bunch of shows for Jamie Johnson. He was playing some theaters and he's, he's a country music singer and brilliant songwriter. We wrote one song together on this record. And um, I was looking forward to that because it's a different experience, you know, um, he's, yeah, it would have been a cool thing. And all the shows I had planned to headline and they just evaporated. And so now every time I play a show, it's like, it's a gift, you know, it's like, this could be it. This might, it might not even happen tonight. So many things are canceled as you started to get back into the yeah. playing. So I don't know. I have that young pup feeling again with also the, um, wisdom of a mom who's like, zero bullshit <laughs> so it's a, i feel like I, I like this this moment in time very much i'm i'm excited about the new songs i'm writing and i'm so so happy and grateful for this record we made and um how much my brilliant band poured themselves into it it's just they they made this music um it felt like it was as important to them as it was to me you know. And is it um is it an odd experience then playing those songs live on your own again? Do you sort when, of have to learn to so when you tour them? Like, when I play with, without the band yeah. and record. Yeah, we did one show in, in Nashville just to have kind of a, a party for the record. And then I've been playing with Gnome and with Will Cedars, who's a great banjo luthier, um, who happens to live right down the road from me, which is very lucky. Um he plays bass and pedal steel when you mentioned pedal steel on these songs like well i'm hearing pedal steel now <laughs> i've the way i started writing songs and the community i felt like i came up in as a songwriter was the boston folk songwriting community so there's bands like um session americana or um a lot of the bands i opened for chris smither well he was he was playing solo but i opened for him when the one time he had a band um you know Rusty Bell, Jeffrey Focal, um, well, I guess Suitcase Junket is what Rusty Bell really became. Anyway, these bands um, were really collaborative and a song didn't always have to be played the same way on the record. And it wasn't a band that was just uh, a unit that only played its own music. Like there's so much crossover and bleed across different this community. So it was just entirely natural to have a tour where it's just me and Eric Haywood He's on pedal steel and electric guitar and I play my guitar. And that is the band for the record we made with a full band, you know? Mm. And um, I just, 
I write songs so they can fit different outfits. You know, I try not to write things that are only um, a studio song, something that only really comes that makes sense in that environment and doesn't can't really live on in the same way live. And that's interesting about the the sort of Boston um, sort of singer songwriter community because I was going to ask you about community because so many of the people I talk to have either sort of grown up in the bluegrass tradition mm-hmm. or they kind of went to college to study music and they've kind of got their communities that have developed out of that right and I was going to ask you about sort of where your musical community oh, yeah. came from because it's such an important thing it is important I'm such an outsider I was a biology major in college and I picked up the guitar when I was 17 18, 17, my parents gave me a surprise gift. I hadn't even asked for it for Christmas because my best friend was getting an acoustic guitar and we always sang together. So they were like, that'd be a good one for Caitlin. I just got a little junky acoustic guitar with the their VHS tape and learned some chords and was just so into it. Um, and I only started writing songs in college. And so, yeah, songwriters are essentially lonely people anyway. You're just, the songs come when you have quiet time away from other people usually. Um for me, I'm not, um, I've, I've co-written songs too, so that's not entirely true, but I, I was working in New York City after college. I worked for five years in two different jobs, one live music, one in the science world, and was trying to, you know, be a real musician, whatever that means, uh, write more songs and record a record, and but it just felt like it was slipping further into this strange a dream and not a reality. Um, I sing backup and I'd play a show once every three months or something at the living room or Rockwood Music Hall, little tiny clubs where at Rockwood Music Hall, it's so small that the sound man's would be, he, the sound man would be lofted above the door with his legs hanging down like <laughs> onto the stage. <laughs> it was a great proving ground for songs and for meeting people. So I met a lot of people at Rockwood. It was just a 45 minute set and a tip jar gig. And you'd stick around and hear other people. And I met Peter Bradley Adams there, who was my bandmate in Down Like Silver. And that was a key moment because he was real. He was doing this for real. You know, he'd been playing for years. And his song, um, oh, he caught me with one of his songs. I was like, now that's a real songwriter. I have to listen to everything he's he's written. Um, my Love is My Love. That song just is so, really stung me. And uh I started singing back up for him and he had heard one or two of my songs. He's like, let's write some songs. So I started co-writing with him and I made an EP called uh, our down like silver EP with him. But I still felt like I was, if I really wanted to do it, I had to quit my job and throw myself into music. And I had to collaborate. I was a, the last job I had was a sustainability consultant. I was an analyst at this company. So we used a lot of whiteboards and, and, you know, PowerPoint presentations (laughs) and spreadsheets. So I took that part of my brain and I had my little list of like the five things I must do if I'm going to do this for real. And one of them was make a real record because I only made EPs and people don't often take those seriously. They don't think of them as real artistic projects in some ways. They are products. They just like a long single or something. Um, and uh, I had to find community. I had to, I had to step out of my shell. And strangely enough, I, I just wrote that down. And Kristen Andreasen, Critter's partner, she had started a uh, camp that year in New Hampshire. And it was its first year called Miles of Music. And it was, um, she invited me to come. I also ran into Jefferson Hamer, who was a um, singer, songwriter, and guitarist I admired from that Rockwood community. And he was going to it and they both said, you have to come. And so I went as a student because if I didn't, I was just, I, this whole thing was a joke. You know, I should just get back to the office and, and you know, tuck my guitar away and wear the suits all the time. And, just, oh. um, and I went there and it was the first time I'd ever played with a banjo or a fiddle on my music. And I I sat down on the dock. It's this little island I've, I've gone to almost every year now um, for a different songwriting retreat. Um, but this camp was, the first year especially, was just a bunch of oddballs who loved music. And it was either singer-songwriters was maybe a third, and a third were instrumentalists from the bluegrass world and old-time music world. And then there were some folks who just wanted to be around music, you know? It was a really cool community and I don't know, hearing my own songs played on 
just by uh, an, an accordion and, you know, a full band automatically. Someone's got the upright bass and you're just like, wow, this is, this is just, my mind was blown. It just blew my world open. I think at that same time, I was also taking a bus, two buses to get to Darlingside, this band um, who had gone to the same college I had, but the youngest didn't graduate until I really quit my job. So like five years I was out and we were all kind of starting at the same time. And so I would <laughs> journey from New York city on these, this really not fun. I don't know. Anyway, um, I would get to their house and I would just make music with them and play shows with them. And so as soon as I decided I had to find community and get out of my shell, it started appearing in front of me. And that's what changed, um, changed my whole deal and made me feel like I just, I got to take the leap and quit the job and see how long I can keep it up. So. Well, there you are. What, what year was that? <laughs> what year did you quit your job? I can't, I think it was 18, 19, maybe it was 19. Yeah. Wait, no, eight, 2008, 2009 or eight. It was the May of one of those. And yeah, it was, I guess that's been a long time. Not 1819. That was pretty yeah. recent. <laughs> pretty bad timing. Another year oh, and then all of a sudden the world stops. <laughs> yeah. It was after the crash because I remember they, there were a lot of companies that were folding and I got, um, I got a, a promotion that I didn't accept. I quit then. And I knew it was, it was a promotion, but I was also like, we would like you to do the two jobs for the price of <laughs> mm. half of one of those jobs. I, was like, I don't think this is going to work. I've had my eye on that guitar and the exit for a while and been nice. I think sometimes <laughs> it's things like that that give you the push though, isn't it? You know, it's sort of, you, you think, oh, well, I'll maybe see if the, like the safe option is the option and the safe option comes out with such a bad offer that you go, brilliant. Off I go. Thank you. Oh, you absolutely. helped me make my mind up. <laughs> I know. I remember um, my ex's uh, dad was in the banking world and all of these people who had chosen the, what they thought was the most safe, secure, provide for the family type jobs, these lifers at the big banks were just um, just wondering what happened and what their their security that they had given up a lot of other things for and planned their lives around like like you said, putting off the good stuff for later just evaporated and I was like, if, there's no security in this thing. I think it's it makes a lot more sense to to do what I want to do and that's it I think if you if you're doing the thing that is you know is what gives you purpose then you're sort of shielded from a lot of that in a way because you've still got that like if you're making art for oh, other yeah. people and they don't like it and you don't like it you've sort of screwed it but if you're making art that you like and other people like yeah. it they will introduce more people to it and yeah like, at the end of the day you're you're the one's got to sing these songs every night of the year Everybody in the audience gets to go home and go to a different gig the next day. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, and it's interesting because this was a, a record that got delayed that was kind of foisted upon you by circumstance and history. Mm -hmm. But um, Motel Bouquet, you'd recorded as an album. <laughs> yeah. And just weren't quite feeling it and, and did yeah. the whole thing again, you know. And so that clearly sort of speaks of somebody knowing when that thing is there and when it's not. Mm -hmm. that was hard to to throw that one away. That was a finished record pretty much except for one song. And I wasn't, I didn't hate the whole thing or anything. It was just, um, it came together in more of an overdubbed fashion, which is really against my grain. And uh, I, Noam ended up producing that record because he said, why don't we just go into the studio and get that one song, Scattershot? that I wrote with Kristen Andreas and she's the star of this podcast, uh, <laughs> this conversation. She, it's so, uh, of course. And the producer was like, yeah, go for it. And we ended up getting four songs that day and a new one I'd written. And it was just like, this was so much fun. Can we do two more days of this? And the band was like, yeah, let's do that. Cause we were all neighbors. And it was uh, very, it was like I had done the most intensive rehearsals for that record I had ever done. And listened back to the songs a million times, and so maybe that's what was so freeing about the actual recording session for that for that record. It was um, so much had been, yeah, sweat through that the the studio felt like a live show where we were all well rehearsed. You know, it was oh different players, but yeah, they could they could do anything. Paul was on that record as well, playing bass. And you were saying before that you've sort of 
now these songs are out, it feels like you can move on and you've got a whole mm-hmm. pile of stuff like ready for what's next. Do you have a sense yeah. of what that might feel like yet? Yeah, or is it still just a case of sort of working with it and seeing? Well, I know there's a song called Electric Guitar on it. So um, I just, I do have two electric guitars that have been terribly abandoned to the, you know, uh, it's hard to, t- to turn an amp on when you have a napping child, you know, at home. <laughs> I do, so I do. I, I'm excited about those instruments and I'm excited about playing with drums because I think the songs I've written recently actually feel like it, they're necessary. Drums are necessary. The songs I wrote for this this record felt like drums would be a bonus, but when we took that idea away, the songs made sense with this with this crew. So but the new songs I'm writing, several of them feel like full band um, drums and electric guitar. So we'll see. I mean, hey, if this band has time and wants to record again, <laughs> I would do it in a heartbeat. Who cares? We we did play that song, Electric Guitar, at our um, at our record release show for Quiet Flame because it was like, hey, this is a new one I've written. You want to hear it? And they just, you know, love a new song and ate it up. So much fun to play that with them. It's funny, isn't it? As a like an audience member, we sort of think of your work as coming in these like collections these albums of Uh songs like these you know sort of photograph books of where you are at a particular point in time but for you Mm -hmm. like one of these songs is 10 years old yeah some of them are very new Mm -hmm. you've already since before any of us would have heard this record you've already got a few songs for the next and it's a much more um fluid and continuous process than the way this stuff is sold would have you believe and so it's just it's always fascinating to hear how that all comes together because you were saying before about eps you know I think one of the things that's come out of streaming is that an EP is a valid thing again. And I like that because there's some full length records that would be very good EPs. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's like, yeah, little filler in there. <laughs> and it's nice to have four or five songs that you can just like Punch Brothers put out. I think it was called Ahoy that had mm-hmm. um, the Josh Ritter song, Another New yeah. World on it. And if you like, that's a beautiful little record. It doesn't need anything else. It's like, right. and it probably wouldn't have they probably weren't in the headspace or had the time or the, even the desire to make that more than it was. But yeah. from my point of view, that's a, you know, a glorious little thing. Yeah, I agree. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I very much hope that the next record doesn't have to be made twice and doesn't get interrupted <laughs> by any form of global <laughs> pandemic where we can't go out of our houses again. Exactly. I hope it's smooth or a natural sailing. natural disaster. <laughs> oh my gosh. But this has been fun. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, I'd love talking to you. Thanks for thanks for talking about music with me. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.